Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series. I'm your host, as always, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books. Um, it's a beautiful day in West Hollywood. Uh, you know, the kids are playing out in my courtyard. People are wondering if we're going back to school in the fall, <laughs> and if so, how? Um, we have a really good conversation today that touches on uh, a very good sort of local intersection of interests. Um, the college ad admission admissions scandal. I'm going to take that again. The college admissions scandal. And uh, I'm just really excited because we have three wonderful journalists here to talk about it, two of whom are the, the authors. The new book is called Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. The authors are Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitt. Hi, Melissa and Jennifer. Nice to have you. Thanks. Hello. Yeah. Uh, and today talking with them, we have Ashby Jones. Hi, Ashby. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, so I'm gonna read their bios and then I'm gonna uh, let them take it away and tell you what the book's all about and what they've uncovered. Melissa Korn is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in New York covering higher education. Previously, she wrote for Dow Jones Newswire. She is a graduate of Cornell University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Jennifer Levitz is a national reporter for the Wall Street Journal in Boston covering general news, economics, and politics. Previously, she wrote for the Providence Journal. She is a two-time Pulitzer finalist. She graduated from Loyola University of Maryland. Ashby Jones is the Deputy Coverage Chief for US News at the Wall Street Journal. He helps oversee coverage of education, regional economies, legal affairs, real estate, and general news coverage for the US. He is a graduate of Haverford College and the University of Michigan Law School. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to hear about this. I've read a lot in the, uh, you know, the, the websites, but I'm excited to hear from, from the journalists uh, covering the story themselves. So um, I'm going to let you take it away. Thank you for being here. Thanks so, thanks so much. Um, guys, I think I'll, I'll just kick off with a, a couple quick words and then we'll get into questions. Um, I, I Again, it's Ashby Jones. I had the privilege of working with um, Melissa and Jennifer for much of last year after the scandal broke. This was something that uh, these guys were working on, um, if not full time, something close to full time. Um, and we at The Wall Street Journal were incredibly lucky to have them pounding away on this story for, you know, the better part of a year. Um, because this story, uh, it's really not an easy story to tell. Um, uh, yeah, the college admissions and, and college 
uh, and uh, the scandal were sort of, um, you know, easy to describe in maybe a few sentences, but there are dozens of characters caught up in this and each, each of whom had their own story to tell. Um, also, the legal case uh, that really touched the thing off was, was really pretty complicated. Um, and also, a lot of what happened uh, was not readily apparent. It, it, it required a lot of digging um, and a lot of just wonderful reporting by Jennifer and Melissa to figure out what was actually going on. Um, but uh, it's a great story. Uh, it's, it's in many ways an American one. It deals with class and ambition and wealth and privilege. Um, it also is a very human one about envy and insecurity and um, some of our most intimate relationships between husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and their children. Um, of course, it also involves some Hollywood celebrities, which, which is always good for readership. Um, uh, uh, in short, we had nobody better to tell it than Melissa and Jennifer, who um, now know it just about as well as anyone. Um, and the proof is really uh, throughout this terrific new book um, called Unacceptable. Um, so let's start here. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, Melissa, I'll start with you. How did you get onto the story? Tell us about the first early days of it. Um, what do you remember? And did you know it was going to be uh, as big as it turned out to be? Yeah, I think March 12th, 2019, is that date is seared into my mind forever. Um, that was the day I walked into the office after a doctor's appointment. I believe I told a colleague, gosh, I'm really tired. I hope it's a quiet day. <laughs> and then uh, we got noticed that there was going to be this big press conference in Boston and something big was cooking to do with college admissions. So I knew that uh, I would be somehow involved in it. Uh, Jennifer up in Boston ran from our office there to the courthouse to be at the press conference. Uh, we got a copy of this 200 plus page FBI affidavit that laid out details of all of these juicy calls between this corrupt college counselor and parents. Started reading through that, looking for bold face names, uh, doing calls. I remember being at the office those first two days quite late at night. Um, but just the adrenaline kept me going. And I imagine Jennifer as well. Uh, you know, when you have a story that big, you're just excited to be working on it. I think we knew pretty quickly that this was not a one day thing. This was not a one week or one month thing. Uh, and other people told us as much when we heard from literary agents that first day, the story broke, uh, which is bananas and amazing. And we ended up working with one of those agents who reached out in the very first couple of days. But that first weekend, Jennifer and I pretty much just pulled a few all-nighters <laughs> and uh, put together a book proposal. So we knew pretty early that this was gonna be something a lot bigger that you can't just tell this story in a couple thousand words in a newspaper or you know, a couple thousand word stories a few times over. It needed more space and it needed more context. Uh, so from really very early on, we knew this was gonna be bigger uh, and that adrenaline and that excitement kind of kept going. Uh, I think the exhaustion hit a while later, but uh, it was just such a fascinating story to report out. You didn't want it to stop. Yeah, um, uh, I remember those days, those days well. Um, uh, reading the book, and if, you, if anybody's kept up with the coverage, you'll recognize the name. Um, uh, or reading the local press in, in Los Angeles to recognize the name Rick Singer, who is really um, one of the central characters, if not the central character in, in the book. Um, and he's a sort of, in many ways, a great central character. He's, he was he's, uh, portrayed really well 
in the book as being devious and charming, greedy, manipulative, shrewd, um, but extremely smart too. Just a just a great character. Um, Jennifer, tell us a little bit more about Singer. How did all of this begin? Maybe for for people who haven't paid attention to the whole saga from start to finish. Who is this guy, and and how did he get involved in college admissions at the beginning? Sure. Um, so. Rick Singer, uh, the def Rick Singer's defining trait is that he is extraordinarily competitive. If you ask anyone who knows Rick Singer from childhood or college or, you know, weekend basketball leagues, they just say, this guy, I have never seen such a competitive person. Um, just almost pathologically um, obsessed with winning. And this kind of takes root when he's a kid. He's living... Uh, in a lower middle class household in a fairly comfortable suburb of Chicago. So he's got a little chip on his shoulder. Um, other kids are just wealthier. He's a chubby kid. He doesn't want to be the chubby kid. His parents divorce. Dad moves away, starts a new family. Nobody really talks about divorce back then. He's, he just seems to have a little bit of a, um, you know, just something to prove. And, um, he he tells his friends, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a million dollar house. I'm gonna be very rich someday. I'm gonna be somebody, and um, he does. He starts to just at that point something kicks in, and he just doesn't take his foot off the gas. And for Rick Singer, life becomes it's not like a journey; it's like a competition, and it shows up in everything he does. And he plays basketball in college, and he's throwing elbows in just a friendly pickup game. He coaches kids sports, and he'll run up the score by 50 points. Um, at the same time, he's kind, of, uh, he's kind of reckless, and he has a sense of, um, like, this arrogance about him, where if somebody says, you know, you just got to dial it down. We can't, you can't do that. He'd say, fine, find another coach, and he'd walk away. At the same time, he had this confidence, um, you know, that was just, he was alluring. Uh, somebody that just has that you know, he, he had an aura of a winner. Um, he did win. He had certainty about him. So people like to be around him. Um, he, even though he like embellished a lot, he was likable. Uh, he just, people were drawn to him. He could fix your problems. He knew what to do. At least he said he could. Um, so he, he ends up bouncing around to some colleges. He graduates from college. He's 26 years old. Uh, he then goes out to Sacramento and he becomes a college coach. And he's very good with the kids. He recruits. He even does a little bit of counseling of kids um, that need to, you know, get into college. He learns a ton. Um, that flames out pretty fast because college coaching, if you don't win, you get fired. So he hangs a shingle as a college counselor. And it's Sacramento. It's mid-90s. There's really not a lot, uh, such a thing, really, as a private college counselor at that point. Um, there's just a few in town but he's like head and shoulders above the rest in terms of, of what he projects in confidence. He becomes popular right away. He goes to, you know, back to college, you know, college nights at schools and people just like him. And he starts to gain a very big clientele among uh, upper-class uh, Sacramento. And, you know, he's, he's a good counselor. He's a legal counselor. He, he is apparently, you know, we've talked to people who used him, um, he would help them find what was special about him. This was a thing he would help kids find their brand. Um, but there are signs that there were stepping stones to his illegal career as early, you know, as the late 90s. The parents kind of stepped up and would talk about how he, you know, he wrote my kid's essay and, and um, even more, um, uh, you know, dubious, he would, 
he had some kids, uh, had a child say, a teen say he was a different race than he was to give him an advantage to get into college. Um, so he, um, he continues on, he just gets bigger and bigger. All those things about him, that win winning and that personality and just uh, hard driving made his business grow and grow and grow. And then how the scam sort of started is that he picked, took something he'd learned from coaching. And this was crucial. He was really smart. As you said, he figured out that college coaches, there, that there is just a real weakness there. Uh, you have these coaches of these lower level sports, um, water polo and tennis, uh, crew, they just don't get that much attention. They aren't that well paid compared to some of the bigger coaches. And they're also required to raise money for their programs. So he knew personally that they didn't like that, that they resented their salaries. So he went to them. How the scam started was he, he went to them and he said, um, look, I'll help you out with your program. I'll give you some money. Um, you know, will you get a little on the side in most cases? And all you have to do is just say that this kid is on your, is on your, a walk-on on your team. Because he also knew that uh, colleges give tremendous advantage to an athlete. Even just a walk-on athlete, your chances go way up. I mean, it's almost a guarantee at some schools. So just put that kid on your roster. You know, the kid doesn't really play, but we'll take care of that. So that's how that, that took, took root. And, you know, I think he just... At some point, what happened is that Rick Singer's, uh, his obsession to win, you know, sort of became matched with some of his clients. His clients got wealthier and wealthier, and they were, you know, like sort of a perfect match for, for Rick Singer. And along the way, he got wealthier and wealthier too, right? He did. He got wealthier and wealthier. He, um, he moved from Sacramento to Newport Beach. He bought a big house. Um, but the funny thing about it is that we can't, we didn't come away thinking that Rick Singer wanted to be rich because he wanted all the material aspects of being rich. But to him, being rich was like a scorecard, you know, to, just a sign that he'd won because, um, you know, he didn't go on vacations. He didn't socialize. He was always getting invited. Clients were so wealthy, they'd invite him to Paris and parties all across the country, but he'd be at the municipal pool swimming laps to try to get his name on the leaderboard for most laps, um, you know, in, in Newport Beach. He'd work around the clock. So money was just a sign, like, I've made it. Like, he was always, if an old friend from Chicago called him, he'd be like, just, oh, I've, I've got this person. He was always, it was never enough. Even though he had really high-level clients, he was always embellishing and making up names, which a lot of them just, you know, he had, it, nothing was ever enough for, for Rick Singer. And I think that really, you know, ultimately was his downfall. And one of the really interesting things to jump in about Singer is, as Jennifer said, the way that he kind of connected with these clients, right? He, so he found this weakness in admissions with the coaches, but he also found this weakness for the parents of this anxiety and this, uh, frenzy that that college admissions is this high stakes game uh, and these parents often kind of something nodded them that their kid wasn't a good test taker or wasn't uh, quite on the right path for a particular name brand school they had like one school in mind that would be a sign of success and Singer 
in many cases would would understand that and kind of eat away at that, help pick away at that uh, at that insecurity and be able to ultimately exploit that in a way. And I mean, the parents participated in this. They were not victims of him in that, uh, you know, that, that he manipulated them. They posed their kids for photos. They, you know, took them to far off testing sites and things like that. Um, but, but there was kind of a, a very uh, high level kind of psychological understanding of what made these parents tick that then Singer was able to use. I think uh, one of the most fascinating chapters in the book is, is chapter seven, one that you guys uh, uh, called the gray area, um, where you do a really nice job of discussing sort of the nitty gritty and the somewhat um, unseemly business of college admissions at the elite schools and how it actually works. I think in a way that uh, really wasn't publicly exposed prior to this whole scandal. Um, Melissa, this one can go to you. What do you what do you mean by by the the gray area, and 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 to what degree does that gray area still still exist in in college admissions? Yeah, I think uh, it's pretty well known at this point that admissions to the most selective schools, yes, merit plays a role, but merit isn't the only factor. Uh, you have every, things as innocuous as hiring an SAT tutor or an SA coach. Uh, wealthier families can afford to send their kids off to a volunteer trip in Guatemala and put that on their resume. And gosh, that looks nice uh, you know, to a college admissions officer. Not everyone can afford to do those things. Those are completely legitimate and legal um, if they make you a little bit itchy. Uh, then you kind of work your way along that spectrum of behavior to, you know, if you're a legacy or a double legacy and you list that on your application, you make sure that the admissions office knows that this is a family affair. Uh, if you are the kid or grandkid of a donor, you again, make sure that it's known that you have that connection. Um, and if you are a parent and you are trying to set your kid up for a particular school, you start giving early and often. Uh, and that's kind of that gray area, completely legal, school-sanctioned activity, but that still is just uncomfortable and makes you question kind of the whole playing field and all the rules of the game. And then the behavior that uh, Singer and his clients participated in, so Singer and his illegal clients, I should say, participated in, uh, is kind of further down that line, you know, at the, the other end of the spectrum of the most egregious behavior. But um, and what some parents who have pleaded not guilty have said was, well, what they were doing was just kind of a ratcheted up version of that gray area, that okay, but maybe a little weird, but again, still legal activity of uh, knowing that money matters in admissions. It's just a matter of how you convey that message. And Singer was conveying it to, to coaches and admissions offices a little bit differently than is, is considered kosher. The, um, the coverage and, and the book itself uh, really focus a lot on Singer, of course, but also on the parents, the parents that, that got involved here. They were the ones um, really making the decisions to go ahead with what Singer had proposed. They were the ones who were fronting the money. Um, and, and, you know, they were really the ones calling the shots. Um, but you're left wondering um, a lot about the kids. Um, the ones who, you know, whose futures were on the lines here and, and whose futures um, 
are are being we're being jeopardized by by the scheme by participating in it um, either unwittingly or not. Did they know about this and and or what did they think about this once it was ex exposed? Jennifer, I'll send this one to you. Did, what 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 did the kids? What was their response to all this um, when it ultimately came out, or did they know all along what was going on? It was a it was a real mix of of um, of, of knowledge. Uh, some of them certainly did know because uh, they they were involved. They they knew that the phony test proctor was in there. They knew something was up, or some of them maybe knew something was strange because they were asked to participate in some way, whether it was posing or sending in an email uh, to a coach with an essay that described them doing things that they had never done, awards they had never won. Um, others were completely in the dark. Uh, the parents uh, did not want them to know. And, you know, so, and, but so the day that this, this broke, I mean, you can just imagine a lot of these kids were not in college yet, but some of them were. And I'll just give you like one example. There was a young, uh, young man who um, his father had gotten him into USC as a water polo player, which he didn't play. And he was doing fine at USC. Um, and when his father came home that day after being taken from the, you know, away from, by the FBI, he came back home. The first thing he said to his father was, why didn't you believe in me? Um, just to backtrack, he was very typical of a lot of these kids. These were, for the most part, pretty good students. They were going to good schools. They, a lot of them, you know, had SAT tutors. They were working hard. They were plugging along and trying to, you know, do what their parents wanted them to. Um, they were headed to school. There's no doubt they were going to go to some sort of, you know, fine college, um, just not the ones on their parents' list. I mean, this, this teen, he had a whole list of schools uh, that he wanted to go to. He talked about how, you know, he knew since ninth grade he had to work really hard. It was competitive. He was, he remembers, he called it the college essay train. He was on at school just practicing. Um, so, it was just really disheartening. Um, but he said what happened is, you know, at, at um, some point, Rick Singer started to come around and the whole family, um, or his father and Rick Singer started to encourage him to, to look, go to USC. Uh, it would make his mom happy. It was not that far. His father had gone there. Um, it has such a, um, you know, an almost cult status among a lot of families. So he just thought, okay, you know, so he, he, he went. Um, and he had really good grades. I mean, he, you know, but he, he got into other schools fine. Um, so it was, I think just for the kids, um, it was like, it was so confusing for him because he could recall times where his father's like, I'm so proud of you. And he's like, well, did he really mean that? Was he really proud of me? And did I really do okay? I thought I was doing everything. I thought I was doing everything they wanted me to. And um, of course his father, has explained um, that he, um, it wasn't the kid, it was his own insecurity, that he looks back and he's like, his kid was great. Um, but he became convinced uh, that he needed, that his kid wasn't special enough, that it was so competitive that he needed to give him some kind of edge. Um, and it was just a, it was kind of a heartbreaking thing because it showed, one of the saddest parts of this was 
how unnecessary this was because you know you had a group of kids who were who were headed along to probably just a fine future and um, the parents by intervening the way they did um, just made things much worse for the kids yeah um and and the the parents i mean you touched on this a little bit but the parents their motive i mean it's just it's just amazing to hear you talk to read the book and to go back and read the coverage uh that the parents were so dead set on this and spent so much time and energy and money um on trying to get their kids into better schools um and these are people um with great careers for their for themselves right i mean they're these are lawyers these are business yeah. people these are entrepreneurs these are actors and actresses these are people who you wouldn't think that they would have um stuff to show the world that they've accomplished or or that they need to be living through their kids or something like that what yeah. do you have any other perceptions you know jennifer or melissa about the parents and about what was motivating all of this yeah yeah, we talked with some some uh, heads of school, and um, they they said some enlightening things that you know that that the parents in some ways were they started to look at their their kids as a reflection of themselves. They were very invested in their achievements and how the kid did was how the parent did, and they were very tied to how their kid did, and um, and they also that you know underestimated their own kids um resilience and so some of them that felt like i can't allow my my child to experience any disappointment and it seemed to be you know that combined with um insecurity um combined with you know frankly ego in some cases um just like i've moved in these elite circles and i'm just going to continue to move in them and then sort of the shock or you know of finding out that wow this isn't a given for me and i need to fix that and you have the means with rick singer and you have the money i mean in some cases parents crept over the line and it seemed like a little bit tortured in other cases it really seemed more transactional i i throw in there too that some of these parents like it, it, as Jennifer said, it was about ego. There was also this insularity and this very warped worldview of what counted as success, right? So for these people, like they wanted to be able to boast at the next uh, cocktail party where their kid was going and you know, Cal State Long Beach was not going to be enough for them. It had to be USC or UCLA or Stanford or Georgetown or one of these other schools where Singer conveniently had some connections. Um, but they had a very short list of what the acceptable schools were. And I think some of that came from just their own experience. A lot of them went to elite schools, although not all of them, uh, or the messages that they got from the high schools, you know, they, these kids were going to the top private schools in the LA area. Um, and those schools, when you look at their websites, they say, you know, we, are you know every student finds their own pathway blah 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 but then they highlight a particular subset of schools as the success stories so they kept getting this message that this is what success means and they would stop it no you know they, they wouldn't stop until they got their kid there 
Melissa, you've, you've talked a little bit about, about USC specifically so far, um, and I know uh, that, that they play really a prominent role um, in the book, as do other schools, but really USC sort of um, throughout the coverage too sort of seemed to stand above the others just in its involvement with Singer um, and with a lot of the parents here. You, you, you even mention or you even name a, a title uh, of, of, of one of the chapters it isn't a great day to be a Trojan, um, referring, of course, to USC. What was the deal with USC? What, why, what was going on there, and why did it get caught up um, uh, in the scandal, maybe more than other schools, uh, other schools did? Yeah, there were some elements about USC's culture and its priorities that really seemed to make it a prime spot for Singer to focus on. Um, there was a, a massive fundraising campaign going on at the university started by the now former president, Max Micaias, a $6 billion campaign, which at the time was the biggest in higher education. So there was pressure on every part of the university to be raising money, including athletics. Um, they had very high, very ambitious targets for fundraising. You also, again, had these coaches that, as Jennifer said, in some cases weren't really paid very much and they were expected to win. They were also expected to raise money for their programs. A little bit of resentment could build in there. There was also the reputation of USC. They were trying to improve the reputation, but still had some of that stigma as the University of Spoiled Children, University of Your Second Choice. Uh, and it's hard to shake that, but as they, as they kind of crept up the league tables, all of a sudden USC became this place that parents wanted their kids to go, especially if they're already in LA, right? It's nice for a kid to be close to home, keep a little bit of an eye on them or something. It's a place that really had cachet in entertainment circles, so that attracted a certain population. So it became just this school that was, in short order, much harder to get into. And that also made clear that they were looking to fundraise. And when you put those two together, it turned into a recipe for a bit of a disaster. Yeah. Um, you, you guys, toward the end of the book, um, you circle back to the arrests and the court cases and uh, mentioned a lot of the guilty pleas that have since, since taken place. Um, I think it's fair to say that that the prosecution, which was which was fairly controversial, at least in the beginning, was led by uh, federal prosecutors in Boston, um, has been largely successful. Um, but early on, there was this sense that the the prosecution itself was sort of flawed in one way, and that is, you, you don't want to be prosecutors that prosecute victimless crimes, right? And and the question was, who are really the victims here? Why are you literally making a federal case? out of this situation when, you know, the schools, well, were they harmed? Maybe not. The parents, were they harmed? I don't know. Um, uh, the kids, uh, maybe they lose their, their place or their seat in a class and have to move on to a, to a different or maybe um, uh, lesser school in their minds. But I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on the victims. I mean, who were the victims here or were there any? And, and if so, uh, who, who really, um, you know, uh, was victimized by this? Um, yeah, so, you know, as the, the, you mentioned all the parents pleading guilty. So as, it, as we get around to September 2019, we're about to start a string of sentencings in federal court. Um, and then something happened, which 
really uh, potentially threw the whole case off. And we really get into it in the book, but uh, the, you had the, the probation department, which makes recommendations to the judges on, on sentencings, say, um, you know, uh, the victims here in this case uh, really didn't lose any money. There was no financial loss. And because the, in, the, in the case, the legal victims were the universities. The universities were portrayed as victims because they had rogue employees, the coaches, basically, you know, selling off spots behind their back to, to people. Um, the problem was that the parents still paid money. The university still got tuition. So you had, a, you had no financial loss. And in a fraud case, it was kind of devastating, it seemed, because, you know, what's the, basically like, what's the harm, right? What's the harm to the colleges? So, um, but what sort of brought the case back was this larger realization, which I think the public, you know, knew from the start, which there's this backdrop victim in this story, which is the people who, the regular parents who, who actually are out there all stressed out and just as anxious as these people, but they didn't hire Rick Singer. And they had to just go to plan B because their kid wasn't gonna get in the school they wanted. Okay, just work with what you have. And it was the kids who didn't get those spots. Because remember, college is so competitive that you know, it's not like necessarily one, you know, it's just a, a tiny degree why one kid gets in and another kid doesn't. So when these kids got in, somebody else didn't get in. So that the real victims um, in the case are, are those families and, and those kids. Um, and that is why the judge came in and she had no financial loss, but she still went ahead and sentenced everyone except one person so far uh, to some sort of prison term because of those very reasons. Um, I think we can make this, this last question, the, the last question uh, of the evening, um, and I'll, I'll uh, send it out to Melissa. Um, the last chapter of the book is called A System Reformed, um, in which you guys discuss the degree to which you think the scandal might have an effect on the way college admissions are handled moving forward. Um, Melissa, what, what are the conclusions to be drawn here? Are, are changes afoot? Do you think this is a real wake-up call to the system? Um, or do you think it's just going to go, this is a momentary blip and things are going to go back to sort of business as usual? Yeah, so I think uh, the punctuation in that chapter title is important. It's a system reformed, question mark. Um, I think right. we, uh, you know, I saw some kind of hope signs of hope and uh, potential for reform in the immediate aftermath. You saw some schools announce that they were going to be auditing applications a little bit, actually verify some of the material in them, make sure that somebody who got into school as a recruited athlete actually showed up and played for the team, which apparently they weren't checking before at many schools, at many sport, in many of these lower profile sports. But ultimately, the admissions offices at you know places like Yale and Stanford and UCLA they have such a high volume of applications that they can't check every detail and confirm it with source material. They just can't fact check everything. There's just trust baked into the system. And I think as long as there's that trust baked into the system, there's going to be people who, who take advantage of that. Uh, I 
we describe in the book a couple of scenes. I went to this national conference for college admissions officers and college counselors in Louisville uh, last fall. And the party line there was, this was not an admissions scandal, right? It was a testing scandal, it was athletics, but don't blame us. Like we weren't the ones responsible for this. So I think some of my natural cynicism crept back in and I kind of lost some of that hope that there would be real reform, real change, um, this moment of reckoning in the, in the sector. I, I also think with the pandemic right now, so many schools are looking at really fundamental financial issues that it's especially hard now for a school to not notice if a family is offering a very large donation. Uh, that's just tough for them to say no to, no to right now. So I think some of those potential points of introspection and reflection and reform are a bit on the back burner right now as schools get through the pandemic financial crisis. Um, hopefully they will pick up at some point soon uh, and think about merit and equity and access and fairness and privilege and all of those words and all of those things. But for right now, um, I, I'm, I think that question mark still remains. Yeah, they'll have to uh, keep their ethics on hold until at least um, the pandemic passes. Um, uh, kind of a, <laughs> a downcast note to end on, Melissa, but um, <laughs> but uh, but well articulated. That's, less of that's me, all. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's that's all I have. Is there anything else you, you guys um, wanted to mention quickly before we before we take off here? No, I don't think so. It's uh, we get into so much more detail for all of it in the book. Yes, indeed. The book is wonderful. So, um, well, great. Well, thanks so much. Um, thank you. And yeah. Yeah, thank you, you all bet. so much for being here. Um, this, was, this was a great little teaser. I hope, uh, I hope our listeners check out the book. Again, it's called Unacceptable. And uh, our guests were Melissa Korn, Jennifer Levitz, and Ashby Jones. Thank you all so much for making time for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. All right, we'll catch you on the flip side, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.